The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Let's just have a brief word of prayer. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, we are returning today to our series in uh, 2 Samuel, and we've reached the 7th chapter. Uh, We've been thinking uh, these past weeks about uh, the kingship of David, uh, his throne, his rule, and especially the return of the ark uh, to the city of the king, the resting place of the ark. And last week, if you missed uh, that sermon, I would really encourage you to go online and to listen to it as Pastor David spoke to us about the joyful return of the ark uh, to the city, to the city of Jerusalem, and the lessons that David learned in the process, the way he brought it in the first time, incorrectly, 
and the way uh, it was brought in the second time, carried by the priests properly as David rejoiced before the Lord. Now this week we come to a pivotal passage of Scripture because it deals with God's covenant now with David and his covenant with David's uh, descendants. So as the ark was coming towards Jerusalem, we heard last week that a hand was put out to try and steady the ark and God struck that man down. We, we heard about the judgment of God and then the, the ark is carried in and now the ark after David's celebration is somewhere in a tent somewhere, not the tabernacle, but somewhere behind curtains, somewhere in the city. And God is now going to make a promise to David about the future. However, and I hope you picked this up as we heard the reading this morning, there's a little bit more to it than just a promise that God would keep David's descendants on the throne. This would only be partially fulfilled in his son Solomon. What's actually happening now in this, uh, really, this pivotal moment in the story of David's life and in the account of 2 Samuel is an assurance, a covenant is being made with David's house that takes us to the very heart of the messianic promise. That what is now being said ultimately is only to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In addition, we're going to see this morning that. David's desire to build a house for the Lord actually gives us a little insight into our own calling as uh, believers. We are uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, children of this great Davidic promise. So there's actually for us this morning, not just a reflection on the place of the covenant with David in redemptive history, and that's important, but there's also an indication of our calling here uh, as God's people. So I hope to unpack those things for us. So I want to consider this morning four types of houses that I think are uh, reflected on in this passage. Four types of houses. The first house is a house of war. The second is a house of cedar. The third house is a house from God. And the fourth house is actually the house of the earth, uh, the temple of God. So those are the four houses I want to talk about. So let's first think about a house of war. So we're told at the beginning here of chapter 7 that David has now settled down into his palace. He's now settled down into his own house because finally the Lord has given him some rest from his enemies. This is now, David has entered into a period, a different season in his life, a season of rest, which up to this point in his life had only been, it consisted, if you think about it, when you think about our journey through 1 Samuel and the early chapters, chapters of 2 Samuel, it was endless conflict for David. It must have felt like the sword was never out of his hand. Constantly with the sword in his hand, a house beset by war. David's house was a house of war. And that had been his life since God had drawn him up from the pasture. From the time he fought Goliath, through all the battles he fought for King Saul, then into the conflicts he fought with and against Saul's army, against Saul, and then the battles that he was having with Israel's enemies, the sword had not left his hand. And that was David's life. And this is why David makes up psalms about war. Songs about war. Because that was David's life. We'll come to that in a moment. But when God gave David the kingship, the enemies of God's anointed, both the internal ones and the external ones, turned on David. And that's why his life had been one of conflict. Internally, there were enemies of God's promise to David. Externally, there were enemies of Israel. But God gives David progressively the victory. He defeats and subdues the Philistines. 
He defeats and subdues the Moabites. He subdues the Syrian kings. He defeats the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Amalekites. This is God, of course, giving his people the land that he had promised. All these nations actually represent rebellion against God and his word. And so we can only look at the victories that David had militarily as victories given to him by God in terms of the promise. Yes, David was a very skilled warrior. He was a, he was a, a, a tremendous general. But these are clearly, biblically, victories that have been granted to him by the Lord. Now, there's an interesting thought for us here as we reflect on the life of David, and that is that when God lays his hand upon you, and you become one of the Lord's anointed in Jesus Christ, as soon as you identify with the kingdom of God, you can be sure that God's enemies will turn on you as well. That's just what it means to be a Christian. Internal, that is inside your own house, inside your own extended family, there will be those who turn on you because of your identification with the kingdom. And externally, when you live the life of a believer and you're identified with the kingdom of God, you can be sure that you will face conflict. And that there will be those who turn against you. And if anybody's ever told you otherwise about the Christian life, they haven't told you the whole story. That's just the way it is. Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. So don't be surprised if you find yourself in the thick of conflict when you become one of the Lord's anointed in Christ. But the good news is, the victories which God granted to David in the subjugation of those surrounding nations contained in themselves a promise that one day, in the Lord Jesus Christ and through him, all the peoples would submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Because in David, we have a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in those victories, actually what we need to see is not just historical victories of David, but the assurance that finally, all those who oppose the kingdom of God will be brought into submission to the Lord Jesus. There's also a warning, of course, that Christ brings his judgment upon all those who oppose the kingdom of God. That's there as well. So with his enemies subdued and experiencing this long period of peace for the first time, David's mind now, as he wanders about in his palace, turns not to adultery, which he'd had the first time. Remember the first time David had taken a break from war? He was up on the roof of his house and he was spying out the land, and he noticed Bathsheba taking a bath. Well, this time he's not thinking about unfaithfulness, but how he can be faithful to the Lord. And he starts to think about the ark of God's presence and how he might honor the Lord for giving him the kingdom, for giving him these victories. How might he honor God for it? He's danced before the ark. It's come into the city. Now it's somewhere behind some tent curtains. What can he do to honor God? That's what David's thinking about. That's his first concern. And it's at this point that he starts to envision building a house for the Lord, a place for the ark, which represented God's throne and it represented God's presence. You remember if you were here last week, uh, David talked about the significance of the ark, the ark of the covenant, as the throne of God as the place of the presence of God. That's why it was so serious to mishandle the ark of God. It's often when we take time in our lives and we take time aside to, to rest and reflect from the various conflicts we're in that actually God starts to give us a vision for our lives. What is the vision that God has placed in your heart for your life? We learn, however, from 1 Chronicles 22 and chapter 28 and verse 3 that there have actually been implications in David's life for being a man of war. 
Being in the house of war has actually meant that there are ramifications of that for the life of King David. David has shed a lot of blood. He shed a lot of blood in battle. He's put a lot of people to the sword. And this is what we read in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 7 following. My son, David said to Solomon, It was in my heart to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God. But the word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and waged great wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the ground before me. But a son will be born to you. He will be a man of rest. That's a marvelous promise. That the son to be born to David will be a man of rest, a man of peace, a prince of peace. Now, these were the Lord's battles. But they nonetheless, the, the, the battles that David fought were the Lord's battles. They weren't just David picking fights. It wasn't David look, one, looking around to expand the nation of Israel and build an Israelite empire. There weren't those kinds of battles. They were the Lord's battles. But they nonetheless reflected the presence of sin in the world that had to be punished by death. The wages of sin is death. Rebellion against God and His Word and the promise of the covenant is death. And David was part of God's judgment. As such, his hands had shed blood. And so David was, actually, from a, in a Levitical sense, he was ceremonially unclean. He was ceremonially unfit to build the Lord's temple. It wasn't that there was something inherently wrong with the wars David had fought, as though there is something sinful about war, conflict. He was fighting on the Lord's behalf. This is not a pacifistic te uh, text. But there was something about this conflict with death as an implication of sin which made David unsuitable for building a house for the presence of the Lord because sin and death are not God's purpose. War was never God's purpose. The Lord's house is a place of rest. It's a place of peace. And it points towards the final rest of the full reality of the kingdom of God, ruled by the Prince of Peace. That's what the temple pointed towards. And so the man of war from this house of war would not build a house of rest. He wasn't the right man for the job. David's son would actually reap the fruit of all David's victories. Now, we heard, I think, even in our prayers this morning, I think it was uh, Russ praying about the children, that sometimes we have to fight battles and win victories so that our children don't have to fight the same battles. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it be good if we were so faithful in our generation, in fighting for freedom for the gospel, that our children didn't have to fight for that. So that they can live in a house of rest and dwell in a house of peace. David's son reaped the fruit of the victories that David fought. And that reminds us that until sin is completely conquered, we will not see the full indwelling of God granted because only then is his temple fully among his people. We'll talk about that at the end. But God's presence is only fully amongst his people when all of these battles, these conflicts are over. That's the house of war. Well, second, a house of cedar. A second kind of house we see in the passage is this house of cedar, and this is a reference to David's house. This is a palace. He wasn't living in a hovel. He was living in a house built 
with the cedars probably of Lebanon. A beautiful house. I stayed in a, a cottage several times of a, of a wealthy gentleman who, huge house, no, it's not a cottage, it's a vast, vast house. And there are miles and miles of pieces of wood in this house, beautifully finished uh, wood. So I can imagine David strolling around in his beautiful house. He was a king after all. It was made of cedar. It would have been finished beautifully. It would be ornate. And I can imagine him wandering about there, having been busy endlessly with war, now strolling in this wood-paneled home, and yet having a sense of restlessness. I mean, if you've been a man of action, constantly at war, and now you're just strolling in your palace, I can imagine you'd be a little bit restless initially. be hard to go from the one situation to the other. Now, chapter 8 speaks of further subjugation of enemies. I'm not actually convinced that's chronological there. I think there's a recap going on there. These, are, these subjugations have happened already. But a man who's been so busy with war and had composed all of these psalms about God strengthening in his hands for battle and his fingers for war. And I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. That's an action-packed life. And now you're strolling in your palace. You could have got bored with the peace, couldn't you? It's possible to get bored with the peace. In all our activity, because we live in a sinful world, because we ourselves are sinners, in all the activity, we need to learn to rest and rejoice and not always be looking for the next battle. That's a particular issue for me. Just sometimes resting and rejoicing in the Lord, as C.S. Lewis once said, we cannot always be defending the truth. We must take time to feed on it. At the same time, though, David's motive now in wanting to build a house was a godly one. He felt, I think, as well as he walked in that place, as he walked in his palace, not just restlessness, but a sense of unease. Unease with a life of luxury. Not that there was anything inherently wrong with his palace, but he was feeling that the juxtaposition of God's glorious throne room, where the glory cloud would dwell, hiding behind the curtains of a tent, while he strolled around in his wood-paneled cedar palace, that there was something wrong with that. That there was something inappropriate about that. And he felt uneasy. The Ark of the Covenant he loved was tucked away. It wasn't a tabernacle that it was in. It wasn't a temple. It was just a temporary spot that they'd found for the Ark. And so David wanted to do something about this. He wanted to honor the Lord. And we need, actually, I think, there's a lesson for us here too, a holy restlessness when God's temple isn't yet built. When it's not finished. Now we're being built together. Christ is the cornerstone. But it's not finished yet. And so in our lives, while we need to rest in the Lord, there should also be a holy restlessness about the unfinished character of the work. You know, truly Protestant Reformed believers are always restless with the way the world is. We should be. We understand the word of God. We should be dissatisfied with the way things are and pressing on to the way things ought to be. A holy restlessness when God's temple is not complete. So he summons the prophet Nathan and he tells Nathan about his desire to build the Lord a house of cedar like his. A better one. Bigger. More ornate, more glorious than his house. I'm living in this beautiful house of my own, Nathan. I want to build the Lord a house. And Nathan's response is a very interesting one. He says, do everything that's in your heart to do, verse 3. The Lord is with you. 
The Lord is with you. Now this tells us that David's vision was a good one and it was a right one. This was a good vision. This was a right vision to build a temple for the Lord. He wanted the ark which represented the throne to be with him in Jerusalem. And he wanted Jerusalem, he wanted all Israel to know that God was the true king. Not just see David's big house, but a temple in the heart of the city that would manifest that God is the king of his people. And that was a right desire. And it pointed toward the greater indwelling of God's presence that would come. But the timing was not quite right. The timing wasn't quite right. Sometimes we have great ideas, but the timing is not quite right. That's been the story of my life. Great ideas, but sometimes the time, I'm I'm usually just a little ahead. I'm usually jumping the gun just a little bit. And I have to exercise patience. Good idea, good vision. But wait the Lord's timing. Nonetheless, God was pleased with the heart that he saw in David. And actually, God eventually uses David to begin the gathering of all the materials for the building of the temple so that his son could build it. And God actually gives David all the plans for the temple. So he gets the blueprints. We'll come to that in a moment. He gets the materials together. But he's not the one who's going to build it. And there's a multi-generational thing for us to think about as well, is that in our instant culture, in an instant generation, in a microwavable, shrink-wrapped world, we want everything now, yesterday, done, finished, and we want to do it. And if I'm not the boss of my company within six months, maybe they don't recognize my brilliance. And if I can't reap all the rewards of my labor, then maybe it's just not worth doing. But actually, God's work, you know, the wheels of providence, they grind slow. Sometimes our task, our calling is to put aside the materials, to develop the blueprints, to put together the plans, to begin gathering the materials for all that God is going to do in the future, to plant a tree, the shade of which we will never sit in. And that takes sacrifice. That takes work. And a sacrifice that looks ahead to a promise. It's not self-centered. God-centered. So often as believers though, we are content to live in our comfortable houses. To live our comfortable lives. With our comfortable vacations. With little concern. For the house of the Lord. For the kingdom of God. All too often we are waiting for the Lord to bless me. To do something for me. To make my life more comfortable. To make my life more blessed. To be individually blessed. Lord give me more blessing. But we've not really truly engaged in battle on behalf of the Lord. You can't win any battles if you never fight any wars. David, though, who was God's warrior on the Lord's behalf, makes his first concern the house of God. The kingdom of God was his priority. Didn't mean David couldn't take some rest. Didn't mean he couldn't stroll in his palace, his wood-paneled home. But his priority was the house of God. His priority was the kingdom of God. And you know, if we actually want a wood-paneled house, make your priority the kingdom of God. Maybe God will give it to you. Just as David's son Solomon made wisdom from God his priority. God gave him all the other blessings as well. If you make God's house and God's wisdom your priority, he'll look after the other things. Is God's house our first concern? A house for him to dwell in. Is that your first concern today as a believer? Whether it be you just gathering the materials 
and putting some plans together. Is your first concern a house for God to dwell in? Now, because David had his priorities right, Nathan is able to say to him, go and do everything that's in your heart to do. God is with you. And there's a lesson here in regard to God's guidance. So often we're seeking guidance from the Lord in our lives. I often have people come to me and ask me about how to discern God's guidance while we do nothing. Don't ask for the Lord's guidance while you're doing nothing. When you're, you only need a guide when you're going somewhere. When you're, wa- when you're already walking. The reality is, if our hearts are right before the Lord, and there's a burden on our hearts to do something, just begin to do it. Begin to do it. And if what we are doing is premature, or it's misplaced, then God is well able to correct our course. I think that's the answer to the question people so often have about the Lord's guidance. Do what is in your hand. Take what's in your hand and do something with it. And as you're in the doing and in the going, God will guide you. But don't sit there with folded arms saying, I'm just waiting for some guidance from the Lord. You don't see the servants of God doing that. A ship anchored in the dock can't be steered anywhere. You can turn the rudder as much as you like. You're not going anywhere. It's only when a vessel is moving and its course is being charted that it can be turned to the left or to the right. And if you love the Lord and you're burdened with a sense of the importance of his kingdom to serve him and to see his house established, do what he places in your heart to do and he'll lead you. I think that's good counsel from Scripture. That's the house of cedar. But then we go on to learn a very important lesson here, that the house that is being built is actually a house not for God. It's a house from God. It's not a house for God. It's a house from God. One of the things we learn is that the Lord's work precedes our work. It wouldn't be until the Lord had actually begun to fulfill his promise to establish David's house in his son during the reign of Solomon that he would allow his own house to be built. His work precedes ours. Our actions are actually always a response to God's gracious deeds in our lives. It's really important to be reminded of the priority of grace. The priority of God's work. David wanted to do something for God, and he was right to want to do something. But what we do is actually a response to what God has promised to do in and through us. The Lord told Nathan then in a vision, we read it there, verse 4 following, that David would not build the house. And he goes and tells him this. And note that David's response is one of joy and thanksgiving. That will be covered next week. But he wasn't stamping stamping his feet and storming off in a sulk. He was marveling at the goodness of God. Now, I wanted to do this. No. I'm doing it my way. No. it, It actually leads to, God's response through Nathan leads to thanks and praise to the Lord. For what God is doing. God explains that until now, he's always used a tent for his glory cloud to dwell in. For the heavenly throne in the earth to be present. He's used a tent, a tabernacle, because it's moved around with the people. Because God was taking them into the land. And everywhere they went, the tent went to say, this is the place of God's dwelling. This is the house of God. He'd never had a permanent home as such. Time was not right yet. But once his Davidic king was on the throne, and once he'd begun to establish that kingship 
and the line of the Messiah, then the time was right for a more permanent picture, a more glorious picture of God's throne room. And so he reminds David through Nathan that all his life and his calling were in God's hands. I took you from the pasture when you were just a little shepherd boy. I did that. I raised you up to be ruler over the people of Israel, verse 8. I gave you victory over your enemies. And I will establish your name and your house and a place for my people so that they can live undisturbed. So God gives David a little reminder that in all the doing and in the vision and in the, in the mission and in the building and the preparation, this was God building his house. It was a house from God that was being established. The critical declaration comes in verse 11. Look at it. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. You want to build me a house? I'm making you a house. I'm making you a house, David. This is the priority of God's work and of God's grace. So friends, in the midst of the task of building the temple, that it is work. It's hard work in God's earth. We don't need to fret. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to imagine that all of this is done under our power. That we need the internal resources ourselves. That we must establish God's house. No, God himself is making a house for us. How is he making that house? Look at verse 12. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So God promises that his faithful love would never leave David's house as it had left Saul's house. Rather, as verse 16 says, the kingdom would endure being established forever. So the building then of the Lord's house, the temple, would be a response of gratitude for the Lord's initiative in salvation and redemption. So, in other words, all that we ever do for the Lord, as we say, is only ever our response to what God is doing in Christ for our salvation and redemption. The house that he is building. And we gratefully respond. Now obviously, when you think about this promise, there's two. you have to read this text carefully because there's two things going on. There's a temporal promise to Solomon. And the immediate descendants. But there's the promise of an everlasting kingdom, of an eternal kingdom, of a line that will be unbroken. So this promise couldn't possibly be completely fulfilled in David's son Solomon, who couldn't possibly be an everlasting king. In fact, Solomon's own son Rehoboam caused a division in the kingdom almost immediately. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, isn't it? A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And immediate, almost immediately, the unity of the kingship is broken. The southern kingdom would be ruled by descendants of David and the northern kingdom a succession of kings and dynasties. But it's clear that unless we are to accuse God of being a liar here, this promise has much more in view than Solomon and his immediate successors. There's something else going on here. The line of Israel's kings from a national standpoint was broken centuries ago. Centuries. 
If this promise were a reference to the nation state of Israel and the historic temporal kingdom of Israel, then this promise is proven false. The national and temporal ethnic kingdom of Israel and its kings have long since disappeared. So this makes this passage actually one of the most critical of all the messianic promises and it's fulfilled for us in Luke chapter 1 verses 32 through 33. Luke chapter 1, 32 through 33. This is what we read. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So the promise here is not just an immediate temporal promise. It's a messianic promise. It's the Davidic promise that the son of David would sit on the throne forever. It's, it's, a bit, it's similar to where Paul says in Galatians that the promise was not unto the seeds, which is the many, but the seed, the one seed, he says, which is Christ. And here we have a narrowing and at the same time an expansion of that promise in the Davidic covenant, that it would be a son of David who would sit on the throne of this kingdom forever and ever. So this promise in our passage is that Christ would be born of David, the greater son of David. David's own son Solomon would build a temple in Jerusalem. Yes, he would, a glorious temple, a marvelous temple, the Sol- Solomon's temple. That temple would be destroyed, but Christ would build the real and lasting temple. God's house, God's dwelling was to be made among men, and it became a true, full reality. Not just a type, but the fullness of that reality arrives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ would make his people a house. This is, the, this is why it's God making the house. You see, it's not just Solomon building a house in the future. This is a house from God. I took you from the pasture. I set you as a king over my people. I gave you the victory. I'm going to establish your house forever. Christ would make his people a house in which God would be pleased to dwell and through whom he would make the entire earth a house for him to dwell in. The greater son of David is our eternal king. And he's building us together as his temple. And he did that when he poured his Holy Spirit into our lives. This is the image the New Testament uses for the people of God. A temple built together in Jesus Christ who is the capstone. So David wanted to build the Lord a house, a temple made with hands. And his desire was good. It was a right desire. It was God's desire. But what God was in fact doing was building his own house. Not made by human hands. Looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That was the promise. Establishing his own temple through the promise that would culminate in Christ and his kingdom. So lastly, don't get too excited, it's a long point. The house of the earth. The fourth type of house. We've seen the house of war, the house of cedar, a house from God. Now I want to close with this idea of the house of the earth. Because this is central to a biblical worldview. Just as Solomon's temple, which he would build, is a type which culminates in the greater temple built together in Christ, so David's desire to build A house is a type of our calling in the earth to turn the world into a place fit for God's dwelling. There's two types here. In fact, the worldview of the Bible could be summarized as the story of the building of the house of God. In fact, the philosophy of history of the Bible is summarized as the progression of types pointing towards that final goal of history 
where God's dwelling is with men and women in the earth. It's a series of types. That's the Bible's philosophy of history. And the worldview of the Bible is the building of the house, or in the language of the New Testament, the kingdom of God. Psalm 72, which should be familiar to you as Canadians, to us as Canadians, since I'm now a Canadian citizen. Psalm 72, verse 8 through 11. This is actually part of the motto of Canada. It's on the crest, actually. It's on the coat of arms of Canada. There's a remarkable messianic text here, Psalm 72. David's son Solomon, this is David's son Solomon, praising the Davidic king in Psalm 72. This is what he says. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Do you think Solomon's praying that about himself? About his own kingdom? Did he think he'd been promised a kingdom from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, that all the nations and all the kings would fall down before him, Solomon? No. No, this is Solomon singing about the Davidic king, the Messiah, about whom his reign was just a type, just a picture, just an image. This is the historical fullness now of the meaning of the Davidic covenant. Solomon's not praying for himself, but the messianic kingdom. So how does that relate to us today? What's the relevance of that for us today? Well, Dr. John Frame, actually, in his systematic theology, as he discusses the uh, Davidic covenant, teases out the implications like this. He says this, Since believers today are in Christ, we too are part of the Davidic covenant. God's promises to David are fulfilled in Christ and therefore given to us. We are to reign with Christ over God's creation. And that's exactly what Scripture says. That we reign with him. Revelation 5 verse 10 says, You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So in Christ, Paul says we're already seated in heavenly places. Your feet are already under the table. In Christ, we participate in that reign and therefore in the Davidic covenant. The house of God, that is the earth as God's house made fit for him by a kingly priesthood, is at the very heart of the worldview of the Bible. Think about this for a moment. Let's consider this. Suppose we're going to build a house ourselves. I've been involved in so many construction projects over the last 12 years. So I've come to learn a little bit about houses, construction projects, uh, how they get built, how they get renovated, how things get transformed. What would be the first step then in building a house? Would we just say, right, let's get together, uh, you know, you bring some stones, you bring some twigs, you bring some wood, you bring a few ornaments, and let's get some duct tape, and uh, you grab hammer and nails, and just build the whole thing in terms of our whims. It would just be a great big mess. The first thing you do when you're building a house is you go to an architect, and yet the, the architect to give you a plan, drawings, a schematic, a blueprint, if you will. And then you can begin once you schedule the work. So first you get the drawings, and then you've got to schedule it in the right order. And that's, of course, if anybody knows anything about building projects, that is the big bugbear with construction, is you've got to get the right workers in the right order to do the right things at the right time. It's impossible. It's near impossible. Right? There's, always, there's always hiccups, right? But that's the, that's the goal. Where's George? Isn't that right, George? Right, that's the goal. The, the right work is in the right order to get the finished project done. 
Well, Scripture actually shows us that human beings are God's image bearers. We are workmen. We take the raw materials of the world and we actually build civilizations from it. That's what human beings do. They bear God's image and they're about the work of building and they build civilizations. So we need a blueprint and a schedule, which is to say we actually need a world view that's actually provided for us in Scripture so that we work from it, from a blueprint in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just random, everybody doing their own. Let's build the house of the Lord. Right, we'll do whatever. No, there is actually a plan. There's a blueprint. There's a charter. There's a schedule for building the house of the Lord. What is that blueprint? Well, in Scripture, actually, heaven is the model. Heaven is the model. What do I mean? Well, the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This heaven, actually, in chapter 1, verse 1 there, is what the Bible calls the highest heaven or the third heaven. Because in Genesis 1, verse 8, God creates the expanse, which he calls heaven as well, in which the stars are placed and the birds are said to fly in it. So that's a different heaven from the first heaven, from what the Bible calls the highest heaven or the third heaven, the throne room of God, the dwelling place of the angels. What we call outer space and the heavens of our atmosphere aren't established till later in the creation week. So the heaven created in Genesis 1.1 is the throne house of God, which is why scripture says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Psalm 11 verse 4. Now this heaven, of course, if we want to put it in modern language, is in another dimension to us. It's very near, but it's very far. It's right there, but you can't see it. If you go up into space like Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, you're not going to find God up there somewhere. And if you fly out into the outer space or the upper atmosphere, no, because the heaven of God's throne, the dwelling place of the angels, is another dimension to us. The heaven created then in Genesis 1.1 is God's throne room. We know that heaven is our model because how we are taught to pray by the Lord Jesus is this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So there's a model there. The apostle John sees in the culmination of all things a picture of the new Jerusalem coming down into the earth out of where? Out of heaven. So we know there is a model there. Periodically, we're given in Scripture a glimpse into what God's throne room is like. Think about Ezekiel and his vision of the the glory cloud and the divine glory where heaven is opened up. And when heaven is opened up, God reveals, he speaks. So the law of Moses is given to us when there is a glimpse of heaven. Moses is on the mountain at Sinai. And he's shown a pattern there. He's shown a blueprint there, a model there, we're told in Scripture, that included art and architecture and worship and a pattern for life. So when the veil is periodically torn away and you get a glimpse through Ezekiel or Isaiah or Moses into heaven, there's a pattern there. Both the tabernacle actually and the temple are architectural heaven models. That's what David wanted to build. The tabernacle was a heaven model given by God. The temple is a heaven model. And this is what the letter of Hebrews makes clear. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was warned and when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. So actually, you could trace this through the Bible and find that the tabernacle, the temple, are a model of heaven. The new priesthood is the one that we have now inherited, and we're laboring with the building materials on earth, remodeling it according to the heavenly blueprint. We're created to act as God's children, as God's agents. We are transfiguring the world from glory to glory. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are recalled to that task. Adam was a priest in God's temple of creation. And we are now recalled to that task in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Think about when you go back to the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The glory cloud bringing the heavenly pattern into the cosmos from the beginning. And so the scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's in a very special sense because they are a copy of the archetypal glory of God. I think we can think about it this way. In those first six days of creation, God's laying the foundations. He's putting everything in place. He's giving us all the raw materials. He finishes his work. And he puts our first parents in the midst of it to worship and to serve. And then he gives us the working week in Exodus 20 as our pattern. Six days you shall labor, the seventh day there's rest. So we now labor to make the earth like heaven just as God did. Heaven as the dwelling place of God and the angels was made that first day. And the expanse was created actually as a reminder of the original heaven. So the blue sky looks to us like a boundary. We know you can fly up through it in a a rocket. We know that. But it looks to us like a boundary, the blue sky. Think about the blue sky on a beautiful day. We see the, the stars and the birds as we look at the sky. And they symbolize actually the things that are found in heaven. The angels, we're told that in Job 38.7. The morning stars stand together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation. So what we even see in the expanse of the heaven are give us a picture in our heavens of what is actually in heaven. The clouds remind us of God's glory, of the glory cloud. So even there we see a picture, a model of the glory cloud of God in heaven. The sun reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the son of righteousness who arises with healing in his wings. And the blueness of the blue sky reminds us of the great sea before the throne of God. So what I'm saying is artistically, if you're artistically inclined, socially, morally, Spiritually, God's throne, heaven, is the invisible blueprint for the earth. We occasionally get a glimpse into it in the Bible. But it's the blueprint. God's word in Scripture is the details. So he doesn't leave us just with Ezekiel's vision or Isaiah's vision or the Apostle John's vision. We have a detailed accounting in Scripture, because it's a book from heaven. In that sense, it's revealed by God. It's not just human words. It's revealed by God, by the man from heaven. And Psalm 19 actually brings together the visible revelation of God's glory in the earthly heavens with the celebration of God's law word in Scripture. So the first part of Psalm 19 is celebrating God's visible creation, and the second part, God's law word as we live in that creation. In other words, we are called to heavenize the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, David wanted to build a temple. He wanted to heavenize the earth. He wanted God's dwelling place, the glory cloud, 
to be in the earth, in the temple of God. God initially told Israel to build a house called a tabernacle. And when they'd finished, glory cloud came and dwelt in it. Presence of God. And then they were told, Solomon is told now to build the temple. As God's house, we would expect the architecture to be a replica of the glory cloud in heaven, and then God moves in. And that's exactly what Exodus 43 through 4 says. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In 1 Chronicles 28, which gives us more insight into this chapter, we have a, and I encourage you to read that this week. If you get a chance, 1 Chronicles 28, read that this week because it's the commissioning, the commissioning ceremony where David commissioned Solomon to build the temple as a fixed dwelling according to the specific plans that the Lord had given to him. And I want you to notice the details. Don't brush over the details. Read the detail of the instructions that God gave to David to give to Solomon. And we read that when the temple had been completed as a model of God's heavenly house, the glory cloud filled the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 8. And remember Isaiah looks up and he sees that glory cloud and the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. He has a vision of it. And then the Apostle John, if you forward wind to the end of Scripture, the very last book of Scripture, so you've got Genesis 1-1, the creation of the heavens and the earth, of God's throne. And then you get to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. And John is having a vision. And he's caught up into the cloud, into heaven itself, where he stands on the expanse and he sees the throne room of God. So accompanying each visible blueprint are these verbal words from God. So it's always both. Gives us a picture and he gives us then the words. So David's desire, all of that is to say, David's desire to build the temple was a model for us. So you can't just say, well, this is an interesting theological point, Joe. I'll add this to my reformed covenant theology, the Davidic covenant. No, this is actually a lesson to us today about our calling. Because we're part of this. Because we're in Jesus Christ. It's our task to build the world, to carry it from glory to glory, making it a fit house for God because God wants to dwell in the earth with his people. Revelation 21.3, we're to make it ready for him. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So these types, actually, when you see them as they develop throughout Scripture, move in terms of God's redemptive schedule. Each imprint God has given successively is more glorious than the one before. So the temple is more glorious than the tabernacle. And Ezekiel's vision of the temple is more glorious than Solomon's temple and the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ is building is more glorious than them all. The new Jerusalem is more glorious yet. David's kingdom was a type of the eternal kingdom of the Messiah, just as the first Adam in his cultural ta ta task was a type of the last. And it all reminds us and should remind us this morning that this means all of history is under God's control. You may look at it today and you think it's out of control, it's a mess. But all of history is under God's control. It moves in terms of his will and purpose. Each successive stage of God's covenant, covenant is related to this heavenly pattern as God's purpose is to glorify us in Christ as the world is finally transformed ultimately into a new creation. And when it's finished, the glory cloud the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven so that God's dwelling is fully and completely with us. The will and purpose of God is finally the full impression of heaven, the full stamp of heaven, the blueprint of heaven upon the earth 
through the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, as he impresses his image upon his people and builds us together as his temple. So the last house is the earth itself, God's house, and we are his priestly people. And the Holy Spirit today, according to the word of God, rests upon us. The Holy Spirit rests upon us. His glory cloud is upon us so that we can fulfill his purposes. Let's come now to the Lord's. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.